This is an ABC podcast. I'm Ann Jones and you're listening to Off Track, the program where we take you outside every single episode. And this episode, it's no different. From the pile of best things that I ever listened to, here's the recordings of Frogs by Professor Murray Littlejohn. Murray Littlejohn is a legend in sound recording. He notched up half a century of recording frogs, starting right back in the early 1950s. You might have heard the last episode of Off Track. In my final undergraduate year, my principal lecturer, he said, these noises they make, we think they're quite important. And I said, maybe they could be recorded in some way if one had a portable recording device. In the 1950s, in Western Australia, that sort of thing just wasn't available. So Murray Littlejohn and his associates built their own recorder, using a mechanism from a gramophone and recording onto tape. This was some of the first recordings on that system, taken in 1954. Heliopolis Mona, field number 5, 19th of April 1954, time 8.30pm, location Sheepwash Creek. And he very quickly became fascinated by the sounds of Australia's frogs. I had a precision sound level meter and was able to measure the the loudness of the calls. We, we did that for some species. We were getting levels of uh, 100 decibels. Mm. Perone's tree frog, Latoria perini. It's testament to the effectiveness of their system, really, isn't it? to be able to advertise yourself across that broad space. I think they were, that was about as loud as they could get without exploding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, First location, near Donnelly's camp, then up to Pemberton Road. 9pm, 17th of April. Little John was a pioneer of bioacoustics in Australia, that is, recording sound and analysing the waveforms and characteristics in a scientific manner, linking that sound to key biological concepts, like speciation. Early in my work in Western Australia, I had to deal with the problem of what looked like one species 
actually consisted of several cryptic species, we would call them. So that led to the description of some more new species. Uh, Helioporus, field number 6, 19th of April 1954, 10.30pm, location 20 miles west. <laughs> Denmark turn off, Manjimup Mount Barker Road. Uh, Helioporus, code word motorboat. In the beginning we were really using it as, as an aid to species recognition, weren't we? We were just mainly taxonomists in that way. A quite a good case history is for southeastern Australia where there are three species of small brown blob blobs <laughs> <laughs> about twenty five millimetres long and it's called the Crinia signifera complex. The common froglet, Ranadella signifera, with Limnodynastes dumerilli. Limnodynastes tasmaniensis and Latoria veroi in the background. Let's say appeared to be one species, and then during an earlier field trip from southwestern Australia to southeastern Australia, we said, aha, something's funny here, and it turned out that there were two species within what we thought was one. The plains froglet, Ranadella parensignifera, with Ranadella signifera in the background. And in, in later work when I returned to southeastern Australia to do more field work, I found yet another in this complex, so we ended up with three species where we thought originally there was only one. Sloan's froglet, Ranadella sloani. Those three species provide us with a very good example, I think, because if one listens to a composite recording of the calls of the three species, there's no problem in identifying the difference between them. Here are the three in a row. The eastern common froglet, also called the clicking froglet. The eastern sign-bearing froglet, also called the beeping froglet or the plains froglet. and Sloan's froglet. Now, all three of these frogs look really similar. They're difficult to tell apart. They're just little brown blobs until you hear those calls. And before this man and his colleagues, those calls were not quantified. And with time, Murray Littlejohn's research became more and more sophisticated. Just as the recording equipment advanced, so did his understanding of call structure and meaning. One species in particular, the Victorian smooth froglet, has a call that has two distinct parts to it. 
Do you want me to imitate it? I do. I really do. Well, it goes... Whack. Pip, 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 pip. Pause. Whack. Pip, 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 pip. The Victorian smooth froglet, Geocrinia victoriana. Now, we thought, that's interesting, that's got two parts, it's got a biphasic call, and it's quite well marked in its two parts. Why would it be doing that? So, in the, in the pre-digital days, we took a recording and we snipped it up and we put the wark into, made a loop of that. And the pip, 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 pips made a loop of that. And then we set up our call discrimination system with our two loudspeakers and two recorders and we played the wark from one end and the pip, pip, pips from the other. And if we released a, a female of the same species, see wh which way she would go. And she was attracted to the pip, 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 pip part of it, but not to the wark part of it. So what purpose does the wark have then? Well then, what we decided to do next, we tracked down a, a male who was calling. They, they, they call on land, which is quite handy and they set up a little territory in, say, a grass tussock in an area that will later flood and the eggs will be laid in that tussock. So we placed a loudspeaker close to this frog that was calling well. First of all, we have the frog calling normally going whack, pip, 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 whack, pip, pip, pip. So if we play pip, 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 pips to it, what did it do? It was excitatory and it just increased its pip, pip, pipping rate as well. But when we played the wark to it, the frog would go, would be going wark, pip, pip, and hear the wark. And then it would stop calling and it would turn around and it would go wark, 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 answer back. So we determined in that way that this first part of the signal was, in fact, had a territorial function directed at other males. And this is a recording of a Victorian smooth froglet calling as normal. Then halfway through this next call, you'll hear a playback. That's where Murray Little John played a rival call through a speaker next to that frog. He's thinking about it.
That one's the playback call again. You can hear how that original frog has changed his call to assert his presence to the other male. So that led to the identification for us. We could indicate that there was partitioning of function in the calls of some species. And there are several species that have calls with two parts to them. The variegated river tree frog, Litoria citropa. Crickets are calling in the background. The leaf green river tree frog, Latoria philocroa. The call of this species consists of two distinctive parts. sort of interesting isn't it it's almost like that is it's one step beyond just an expression of identity as this is I am species X and mm. now it's one step towards language the repertoire is in fact being elaborated isn't it yeah so they've got two what two words anyway haven't they <laughs> It seems like most frogs that we looked at also have an announcement of occupied territory to a challenge that's sometimes called an encounter call or territorial call, which is evoked under those conditions. And that would encourage the spacing of calling males. Hmm. So I'm just imagining that occurring in the wild. Yeah. Which what could follow could be a frog fight. Is that what you're saying? Uh, oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and f frogs are sumo wrestlers, mostly, <laughs> from our few observations. <laughs> I guess that's, that, that's all the, the only the equipment that they have are just their fairly strong uh, arms. <laughs> Les Ewer's river tree frog, or the rocky river tree frog, Latoria lesuri with Latoria citropa, Latoria philocroa and crickets in the background. And then as our samples of recordings increased, we were able to pick up patterns of geographical variation and that became the next phase in the work which became evolutionary we began to ask questions about the process of formation of species and the geographical mechanism. And then that later led me on to another phase of my research, which was to study natural hybridisation between these closely related, rather similar-looking species. Hybridisation throws up some really interesting questions, like, is the call of a frog an inherited thing? Does it have a genetic imprint? My favourite example there is of two species 
in Victoria, actually, the Tasmanian smooth froglet. Because in Tasmania and Western Victoria, and it reflects an old continuous geographic distribution during the late Pleistocene when the sea level was 130 metres or so lower and there was this land bridge connecting it all up. And the Victorian smooth froglet. The Victorian smooth froglet, Geocrinia victoriana. The call of this species consists of two distinct parts. And they form a very interesting hybrid zone in southwestern Victoria. And we spent a lot of time studying that interaction. There's a zone of contact that zigs and zags across western Victoria and in the contact zone there are male frogs making strange mixed up sort of calls compared with the two parental types. And the calls of the parental species are remarkably distinct and according to our established standards they should not have been hybridising, but they had, which is very interesting, you see. So there's the Victorian smooth froglet. And the Tasmanian smooth froglet. And here's a hybrid of the two. It sings a song made somewhere between those two calls. The green and golden grass frog, Latoria aurea, with Limnodynastes tasmaniensis, Latoria perinae, Ranadella parensignifera, Ranadella signifera, and Euperolia levigata in the background. Choruses are really interesting, and and towards um, the uh, end of my active field career, I was trying to record choruses, really because it's sort of frog music. And to just look at the structure of the chorus in terms of which species are present and the particular frequency bandwidths that they're using. One example of a chorus of several species at Yanyin, northern suburb of Melbourne. Thank <laughs> you. 
one can listen to the jumbled up chorus and then go through and just look at recordings of individuals to show how the, the component species of this five or seven species are stratified with frequency so they're some large frogs tend to have lower frequencies more frogs higher frequencies so we get them sorting so they're sorting themselves out to make themselves easily identifiable to other members of the same species i'm assuming for the efficiency of communication yes the the tuned systems enable them to uh, minimize the interference yeah When you're walking around and listening, and especially when recording, you notice frogs are alternating, so they're time-sharing. One study we made way back was we noticed that there were two species of autumn-breeding frog. One of the species, a Victorian smooth froglet, it goes whack, ick, 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 ick. We were trying to record a second species the toadlet, <laughs> which sounds like this. It's <laughs> not a very good imitation. <laughs> and um, there, were, there were two, one of each species in close proximity made this recording and it was wark, pip, 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 and then and then wark, pip, 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 and then arc, arc, arc. They're alternating. The one with the long and complicated call was sort of dominating the time, but the other one was feeding into the quiet intervals. So they were time-sharing. Of all of the frogs in the world you chose to focus mainly on little brown ones, on common ones too. Why would you do that? I don't know. I think there have always been interesting questions raised that, that lent to generalities to keep me going. <laughs> in zone 54, 282-765 east, 6072 281 North. In retirement I sort of kept going, gradually tapering off. In the end, age takes its toll because I needed to have visual accommodation for looking for little brown blobs and needed to be able to flex the body bending over. So these, these t took their toll. But I was not, you know, quite... I took that as inevitable. Wheels turning. Um, the following temperatures apply. These are taken with an indoor-outdoor digital thermometer of no-name brand. Murray Littlejohn, uh, Associate Professor of Evolutionary Biology, Bioacoustics and Zoo Geography at the University of Melbourne, now retired 
All of the frog recordings in this program are years, and they range from the 1950s to the 2000s. Okay, the the locality is the um, Hindmarsh Valley Reservoir, Fleurieu Peninsula, South Australia, 14th of September, year 2000. Uh, Helioporus, field number three, 19th of April 1954, time 7.45, location Sheepwash Creek, weather overcast with light showers. I'm Ann Jones and this is Off Track and I'll be ready for adventure, always somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.